Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Dr. Tanya Walker. Tanya Walker, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Right, I I am intrigued about your uh, background. Where were you born, Tanya? I was born in Tehran in Iran. And did you grow up there? So my family lived there until I was around seven years old. I'm Armenian by ethnicity. And then we uh, moved from Iran, uh, went through Switzerland for a short while, and then we've lived in the UK ever since. So this has been my home uh, growing up and ever since. Uh, so how many generations back does, you, does the Christian faith go in your family? Um, so my grandfather became a Christian, I think in his early 20s. He has a very unusual story of how the Lord met him and uh, spoke to him as only God can do to the individual heart. He uh, didn't know very much about Christianity. He grew up in Iran and obviously a majority Muslim nation. And uh, he had had some encounters with cultural kind of forms of Christianity. But um, I think he would have described himself for all intents and purposes as an atheist. And um, he became a Christian. It's an unusual story because he heard an audible voice say to him in his early 20s, young man, leave everything you know behind and come and follow me. And he immediately knew that this was God speaking to him. He got hold of a New Testament, which was easier to do in those days, um, went back home, literally locked himself in his bedroom and read all night, read the New Testament in the early hours of the morning, encountered the person of Jesus Christ knelt by his bed and everything instantaneously changed for him. He, he, when he described it, he would always say it was a black and white. It was, an, it was an all or nothing deal. He immediately knew nothing would ever be the same. And that's the story began. Do we know much, Tanya, about the underground church? Uh, not just uh, in that country, but in other countries. Do we know what's going on? Um, I guess, uh, yes, there are some ways of knowing what's going on and friendships and connections where uh, information is shared. I think there have been now increasing kind of social studies done on the statistics of what is happening, particularly in Iran. And I know in other nations, too, where the growth is harder to measure when things are pushed underground in that particular way. The story of the church in Iran is the story of hundreds of thousands of individuals who are encountering Jesus Christ and finding that he is worth it all. And then the story goes from there. And are many of those, Tanya, encountering Jesus supernaturally? Um, That appears to be a a very uh, significant way in which many are coming to the church and uh, becoming Christians, the experience of dreams and visions of Jesus in particular. And um, there's also the work of evangelism that individuals do faithfully and sacrificially and and pay the cost, but live for Christ in very significant ways. And there's that incredible meshing of the two. Um, And yeah. Yeah, I like I like that meshing of the two. It's almost like the Lord has commissioned us uh, to be witnesses, to be evangelists. uh, But where there are restrictions and limitations, it's like God bypasses it, doesn't he? Yeah. And he says, "Okay, well, I'll just have to speak to people through some dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I've always found my kind of my backdrop in Iran so, so faith giving in terms of um, I I've often, when I speak to different crowds, maybe people who don't know anything about the story of Iran, um, 
they might come to me afterwards when they hear about some of the explosion of the church there and say, yes, you're so right. The, there is no such thing as a closed country in that sense. The Lord is moving so powerfully. Actually, Iran is, is open to the gospel. And sometimes people go on to say, you know, the real closed countries are the Western nations. Yes. And I feel like saying, no, no, you've missed the point. What, what my backdrop has shown me and given me faith for is that there is no such thing as a closed country or a closed person. No. I think often in the West, we look at our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and of course, we don't come with death penalties if you share your faith. Of but course. For all sorts of other reasons, we consider our context closed. I meet so many people. I myself sometimes find that I don't really have courage or faith to speak to that person sitting next to me. I, I consider them closed. And... Um, if you like, one of the great impetuses of this backdrop of the awareness that God is not, God can walk through walls. He can. <laughs> um, that uh, it's not just a kind of, oh, isn't it wonderful? Although I, I love the heritage that God has given me, I rejoice in it, I celebrate, I want to live in the good of it. But it's not kind of looking back over my shoulder thinking, wow, wasn't that amazing what God did there and is doing in that faraway place in which I am not living. <laughs> it's looking at the people around me, at my colleagues that are in different contexts thinking, wow, together we can Absolutely. reach this nation and these nations. And there's an incredible joy to that. And uh, are you hopeful that what has begun uh, in Iran will continue and that God willing for a revival, a spiritual awakening to come to the entire nation? I Yes, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, I I'm, if I'm honest, I'm hopeful about that all over the world. Um, whenever I think about revival, I, I'm kind of not looking at people, at how people are responding to God. I'm, I often just start with just looking at God, who God is, the, the God who loved us so much, that who demonstrated it in the cross. This is, this is the God that I worship. I know it's the God you worship. This yes. The God who gave his all, the God who is on the advance, the God who is the initiator, the God who woos, who pursues, who loves. And so when I think about Iran, when I think about anywhere else, I'm thinking, that's the kind of God I worship. I, I know that he is wooing all the time. And revival is, if you like, the response to, to being wooed, that yes. incredible response to love first shown or love first initiated. So um, I'm very hopeful in Iran and, and elsewhere. And in... <laughs> elsewhere globally. Well, what about your own personal faith? Uh, when obviously you were brought up as a believer, but when would you say it became a, a personal reality for you? I, I live in the joy of never having a kind of a conscious moment without having believed in God. I yeah. am one of those people who was privileged to be brought up in a Christian family and not just a Christian family who talked the talk, but really walked the walk. And of course, this sure. incredible backdrop of the experience of God in many ways. Um, I think what's been very important in my story is that I'm a very head driven person. Yeah. I, uh, things need to kind of make sense in my mind and then my emotions tend to follow after the event rather than being the other way around. Um, and so I grew up with many experiences of God. I grew up having no doubt that this was real, that the, the life that my parents lived and my family, extended family lived, there was an authenticity to that. But really from the earliest age, maybe even eight, nine, 10, definitely preteens, I was already thinking to myself, 
how can I know this is true? Um, experience is a valid form of evidence, but it's just one strand. So that's one strand. But how, how can I build this? How, how will I know there'll be seasons perhaps when I won't experience it? There'll be seasons where I don't experience the love of God or don't feel certain things about God. How will I know that this is true? And uh, I know it sounds a, a little bit odd. Um, I was an odd child. I'm not going to try and deny it. <laughs> but I think I was around 12 and nice. I, um, I decided in my mind one day, I'd like to go to Oxford University and study politics, philosophy and economics. I don't know why I had heard of that degree, but um, I had. And I suddenly thought I'd like to study that and I'd like to study it there because I'd, I would like to be speaking to that kind of caliber of person to be in contact with those kinds of professors, particularly in the field of philosophy. But over, more broadly than that, and to um, to ask my questions about God and see, does this really stand and uh, and I felt that it did. <laughs> it did, yeah. And obviously, and you ended up doing a doctorate. What I, did you do your doctorate in? So my doctorate, it's really a questions about power, yes. how we experience power, what is power, powerlessness, the interaction of power was really its driving theme. And then looking at authority, looking at human rights, looking at women's rights specifically, looking at how communities, minority different groups and different competing rights work together within the context of liberalism. And I mean, I could, I could talk about that all day, but sure. I, felt, I felt it was a privilege to be given some time to to think and process deeply about themes that are important. And, um, and they've really informed my thinking ever seen since, although they're not directly relevant to much of the work that I'm doing now, other than the theme of power, which has been a, a recurring one for me, how I think about power. But throughout all of this time, obviously, and all of your study, it's convinced you even more about the Christian faith. Yes, it, it really has. I have felt um, as, as each uh, experience has come up, as each uh, bit of evidence, as each bit of learning, as each bit of reading, as each bit of thinking, that um, they've been, if you like, multiple different strands working together to provide a more and more and more compelling case. There have been times where I've had very deep questions, particularly um, times where um, through one experience of suffering or another, that feeling of um, hopelessness, even despair at times, leading to ask very difficult questions about trusting God. What does it mean to trust God? If, you know, we're being told God is loving, God is good, God is kind, but then you have an experience that doesn't seem to match up. How do you square that circle? So it hasn't been, um, it would be, it would be kind of misleading to say, oh, and then it was great and then more great and then more great and then more great after what there were moments of deep questioning does this make sense in light of my experience? Does this make sense in light of suffering? Um, and um, it's been very meaningful and um, very joyful ultimately to really work that through with God and become even more convinced he stands at the center of the universe and that has all sorts of implications. Uh, and um, how do we trust God? I think that's an interesting one that you raise because we don't often talk like that, do we? But I suppose for many of us, that is the issue, isn't it? Mm. We're, we're presenting with truth and we realise, yes, it, it is true. But then how do you trust? How do you do it? Um, I, it, this has been a, a very kind of 
a deep theme in my life. I think when you um, experience any form of deep suffering or when you become very aware of other people's suffering, it's almost impossible not to ask the question, okay, we're told, you know, God is good. God is loving. We trust God. But what do we trust him for exactly? Because it seems to be not working out so well for me right now. Um, For me, I found that it came down to a question about absolutes. And maybe I'll explain that a little bit. Yes, please. I think it is a question of what you will allow to genuinely be God in your life. And what I mean by that is... What will stand in the center of your story? What will, have, what will be the absolute rela- reality that you build your life on? What will be that foundation stone? What are you going to measure everything else against? There are multiple options that you could choose, but everyone has something there. And when we go through extreme suffering or very negative emotions, I think for... Um, many Christians even, even if in theory they think God stands at the center of my story, God is the foundation on which I'm building everything else, what can actually happen is that we make our emotions or our experience God. Yes. We put our emotions, our experience right in the center and then we build everything around it. So for example, if we've had a very negative experience, we might say, right, this is the sieve through which everything else will come through. And it becomes the sieve through which we assess, we put ourselves as judge and jury over God. But it's actually our emotions and our experience that become God. And through that sieve, we assess the character of God. And obviously, then we find God wanting. But the more I thought about this, the more I became convinced it doesn't even take a belief in God to realize that our emotions or our experiences aren't solid ground. In my particular case, there was an experience that I had in my early 20s that I thought was shockingly awful. And literally within the space of five or six months, I began to realize I had been rescued. I had been taken out of a situation and that that was very important for my life and everything that came afterwards. At the time, I thought, where is God? Where is God's goodness? The emotion was so extreme. But very shortly afterwards, I saw it differently. And, and I know that so many other people have the same experience. You think some things are awful in the moment. In the future, you realize, no, that door led to all these other doors. Other times you think something is wonderful and you realize, no, that thing that I thought was a blessing proved to be a curse. So I just began to realize, even just coming from an intellectual standpoint, it doesn't take a belief in God to realize If you build your entire life on your emotions and your experiences, that's not solid ground. Even in our anecdotal experience, our emotions change, our our assessment of our experiences, whether they're bad or good, changes. And so it becomes a deeper question of, okay, well, what does deserve that ultimate central space? What is it that really can be trusted? And for me, through all the other studies I was doing, the questions I was asking, the experiences I had had, I came to the conclusion that only God deserves to be God in the center and I'll build on him. But maybe what is challenging about that is that if you're going to say God is at the center, in other words, he's the ultimate reality, he's the the thing that determines everything else, then it matters very much which God you're talking about because the character of that God at the center determines everything else of your reality. And that's where I found that the claims of the Christian faith, that God would be 
both all-powerful and all-loving, which are claims that are profound and unique, that this is a claim that can be trusted and be built on and was true to what I was experiencing in the rest of life. There are many different philosophies, mm. Tanya, and lots of different beliefs. How do we know uh, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? How do we know that he is the true and living God? One of the things that I have loved about the Christian faith, one of the things that have drawn me increasingly in rather than out has been has been the person of Jesus. Um, I've often joked with my friends that I think people find very easy the, the concept of God. Many people find it easy to believe in some kind of conceptual, you know, being far away out there. Um, it's almost like believing in an imaginary boyfriend. You can just make it whatever you want it to be, this concept. Yes. Jesus, Jesus is the joy of an embodied person right in front of you. He doesn't bend and move to your kind of imagination. This is God embodied and it requires a much more kind of a, a connected response. So I've always found the person of Jesus very intriguing, that we're not being uh, invited to some kind of conceptual realm. We're being told Christ embodied, God embodied, here he is. You want to know what God looks like, here he is. And then to connect. Um, the reason I found that the embodiment of God in Jesus Christ so important is because Christianity then stands as a historically verifiable faith. Um, we are The Christian faith is making claims about history, that Jesus really lived, that he really died, that there really was an empty tomb. There are claims that are being made about his life, what he did, what he didn't do. There, There's a story being told that has all sorts of um, historical information and data. And so in a sense, it should be the easiest thing in the world to disprove because we're being we're making embodied claims, not conceptual claims. Conceptual claims can kind of be very, you try and grab at them and they dissipate. But when you're making historical claims, they can be tested. And Jesus Christ, how do we know that he was God? Because he made a whole bunch of claims about his life, particularly his death and then his resurrection, which I feel are historically testable, and I've come to believe that the evidence suggests that that's exactly what happened, that he died, and that three days later we have an empty tomb. Why are there so many people who appear to be disinterested in that truth? Because you would think, Tanya, well, if that is the truth, then why don't people want to know it? I feel, sadly, that many people do not really know what it is that Christians are talking about yes. in terms of what it is that we're offering. We have too often packaged our message because of our own brokenness, because of our own weakness, because of the failure of our communication as a, a self-help program or a motivational kind of thing going on or a, a set of rules, that, you know, good and bad, and this is how you live and this is the boundaries in which you live. We, we have failed to really present what is on offer, firstly, by way of relationship. That's the central offer, relationship with God, and also the greater offer of, um, if you like, the transformation of living in black and white. Yes. And then this relationship 
which infuses color in everything else. And we haven't found great ways of articulating what it is that we have experienced when we've come to know Jesus and what living in that multicolor actually means and signifies. I like it where it says um, that we're encouraged to love God with all of our mind and our heart uh, and our will. And, and you obviously hinted at that earlier on, um, that we've got to use our mind, don't we? And our heart. And um, there is enough evidence out there if people are willing to use their mind. And then they'll experience it in their heart if they want to. Yeah, I really believe that. I believe that every person who is really hungry to know God will know God. Um, I have become increasingly convinced, though, as the, as the years have gone on, that we human beings, we have incredibly sophisticated ways of being blind to ourselves. Yes. So we might think we're very open. We might think that we are, you know, really searching. But um, actually, for all sorts of very complex reasons, we're not. I... I believe that God has the ability to kind of override that in the sense of kind of help us out and kind of yes. connect with us still. But um, I think maybe if there are people who are even might be watching or hearing this and thinking, oh, I've, I've always been open to God, but he's never made himself known. I think it might be worth just a second check of what does it mean to be genuinely open? Are we willing to have our lives upended to be transformed, to enter into a different space, a different realm of being with God, to really connect with the, the person who created us and loved us? There are, there are scary questions there. Um, but I do believe the sense of loving God with all your mind, your heart, your strength, to your whole self, there is an incredible depth and scope and nuance and layers to and fragrance to the gospel. It's not a, a narrow thing. It's not, oh, cerebral to cerebral or even emotion to emotion or whatever it might be. There's, there's more than enough wonder in it to encapsulate a whole person and through that whole person to encounter God and enjoy God. The key questions or that appear to be the big questions that are often the stumbling blocks to people's faith or journey of faith. What would you say they are? What would be like the top five? I've always found that human beings are surprising in terms of there is an individuality to the questions, even when you get the question a lot. So for example, I'd say the question of suffering comes up a lot. How could a good God allow suffering? Or the question of um, how can there only be one way to God? Or what about the people who've never heard the gospel, which is particularly interesting for me, given my backdrop. Um, and, and these kind of big questions. But I've I found that two people asking the same question is actually yeah. two different questions. So I always hesitate to put them in kind of yes. one block. Yes. One person asks the question of suffering. Actually, they're asking an intellectual question. They have they can't quite see how these building blocks fit together. Another person is asking the question of suffering from the experience of a pit of darkness. They want to know, is there a way out for me? Um, one of the joys of, um, doing, of doing the work that I do speaking to people about the Christian faith is, is that you're speaking to people. And I really love finding 
where what is happening in their worlds where is this question coming from and then engaging with the question but yeah suffering the exclusivity of the christian faith how can this be the only way um um, questions about the historicity of the Christian faith. Did the resurrection really happen? How can we know that it happened? What's the evidence for that? Or has science buried God as one of the books was written? So, um, yeah, those kinds of questions are, are um, ones that well, we enjoy engaging with. <laughs> can you answer one of those questions for us, Tanya? Okay. Um, what about all the people who don't appear to have been told about Jesus Christ? I find that question has a lot of assumptions to it um yes i uh, um my husband is a lawyer and i often use this analogy imagine if you came to me and said you know toby is involved in this such and such a case and here's the legality of the case and here the you know the legal principles that apply here's the circumstances of the case what will the outcome be and um, my answer to that would be, I don't really understand the legal principles you've just said. I might not know all of the circumstances that you're describing, but I really know Toby. I've known him for a long, long time. I've seen him in every conceivable context. I've really done my homework on this individual. I've seen him in his highs and his lows in every context. So I know that as far as the outcome depends on him, the outcome will be just. This is something of what we're being invited into with God. We're being invited to know the hero at the center of the story. When you ask, uh, there's that verse that at the end of time, everyone will say just and true are your ways. Um, when we're asked about the people who have never heard or appear who have, to have never heard the gospel, I know if you like some of the circumstances, some of the bits of legislation, I know that it is only through the cross and resurrection of Jesus that it is possible to be saved. I know that there appear to be people who haven't heard about Jesus and who haven't heard about his saving grace for them. So I don't know how all of this fits together, all the details, because it would really deter. Uh, thankfully, I'm not being asked to play that role either. I'm not being asked to be judge. In fact, the Bible explicitly tells me not to judge. Um, but I can say I know the hero at the center of this story. And I know that as far as it depends on him, it will be, the outcome will be just. But it's more than that for me because of my experience of the underground church and the church in Iran. Yes. I remember one context in which the person who raised this question raised it very forcefully and raised it specifically as an example, Iran. And it was just very illuminating to me because it was interesting, this sense of, yeah, of course we assume they've never heard but I know to be true that hundreds and thousands of Iranians are supernaturally hearing about the gospel and yes. coming to Christ. So I'm also always a little bit cautious what we assume to be never heard. God's love is able to engage with and encounter people where they are and to, to reach those who are searching and hungry for him. And then at the same time, that challenge and impetus for me that I want to make sure that on my watch, as far as it depends on me, that less and less people are in the category of people who have never heard. And what about my neighbors? Am I sure that they've heard? What about my colleagues? What about my school friends? And the responsibility of maybe I can be part of bridging that gap. Tanya Walker, thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Thanks for having me. I, I do love Ta Tanya Walker's, uh, just the, the way that she communicates, the way that she uses her, her mind, and, and yet she's a heart person. 
and um, I'm so inspired to hear of uh, God reaching people um, through the supernatural but he also wants to use us as well to play our part and that's why we're his co-workers. I hope you've been inspired by today's interview with Dr. Tanya Walker. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.